From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. One of the uh, organizers of some of the protests we've been seeing lately is Katrina Johnson. Her cousin is Charlena Lyles, who was killed in 2017 in an encounter with police uh, in her apartment. And you you organized the vigil at Magnuson Park, which uh, how many people ended up showing up for that? I think it was somewhere around, um, they said they estimated around uh, 900 to 1,500 people were there. Yeah. And obviously, the reason I wanted to talk to you was to see what you think about what's going on uh, up on Capitol Hill. Uh, by the time this airs, it could have completely changed. I don't know, the, the tensions seem to, to ebb and flow there. But there seems to be significant disagreement as to whether this is the proper tactic for achieving the kind of police reform that would prevent things like what happened to your cousin. So where do you come down on that? I think it takes all different kinds of things to get the system to move. I do not necessarily condone some of the events that have happened on or around CHOP, but I am not condemning CHOP for what they are doing um, during this time. You know, I think that there are some things that are being painted to make it seem like everything is actually happening inside of CHOP when some of these shootings that are taking place are actually just right outside CHOP when I am reading some of the events that happened. So you think they've had a constructive role in calling attention to this issue? Oh, absolutely. I, I I do believe so. I know that I took several families to job from all across the nation. We did not feel any fear for being there. We didn't feel like it was unsafe while we were there. Um, and the, the folks that were in there were actually very nice and wanted families to talk and just kind of like yielded the space to us. It was actually very warm and inviting, to be perfectly honest. And the artwork is amazing. I know. Well, I'll agree with you there. <laughs> There's some pretty epic artwork, which, uh, if it survives, will be a tourist attraction for a long time. Um, but to the issue, then, have you been involved in any of the negotiations about police reform in Seattle? I have not been in, uh, involved in any of the late um, uh, negotiations on how to resolve some of the police reform issues that we have within the city. I am not sure why. But I think that that's half of the problem. People that have been doing work in the community um, for a very long time have not had a seat at the table. And that is concerning. Yeah. One of the reforms that's been suggested, though, is that there needs to be a way of when you have a, a domestic violence situation where mental illness may be a factor to call somebody other than an armed police officer, some kind of uh, social worker. Do you think that would have made a difference in your cousin's case? Absolutely. I think that had someone who had uh, mental health training been at the scene, I think my cousin uh, would still be alive. I do not think that just because you have mental health issues, you should be condemned to your death. And that's what we keep finding ourselves in. I mean, I believe people who have mental health issues oftentimes fall victim to uh, the police use of deadly force. Right. But she also had a knife, right? They say she had a paring knife. Uh. Um, and 
to this day, we don't know what really happened. We don't have any answers, which is why we are urging other cities and the officers who actually killed my cousin to drop their lawsuits so that the inquest process can move forward so that we can find out what actually happened on June 18th when my cousin lost her life. Yeah. All right. Then I won't, we won't apply to the, this particular case, but this is the scenario I'm, I'm thinking about. So somebody calls the the mental health officer to come to respond to the scene, and it turns out that somebody does have a weapon, then what do you do? I mean, I don't know that it needs to be a mental health officer. I think it needs to be a mental health professional, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, historically, social workers and mental health professionals have dealt with um, individuals who have been armed and have been able to de-escalate them, and they do not they do not have badges and they do not have guns, and they have been able to defuse those without loss of life on either side of that. So I do believe that that is something that can be accomplished when you get uh, people involved that actually know how to um, deal with and handle those complicated uh, scenarios. Okay, so in other words, it, it would not be it's not a crazy idea to send an unarmed person into a situation like that if they have the proper Uh, skills. I agree. Yes. I do not think that that would be too far-fetched. I think that oftentimes that's been happening for decades. I mean, if you talk to any uh, social worker and mental health person, they will let you know that they have dealt with people with weapons and they've dealt with people who were having violent outbursts. And so that's not new to them. So let me ask you about the bigger question. I was talking with um, one of the county council persons in Camden, New Jersey, where they abolished their police force and then started again from scratch. And what he told me was that the first thing they had to do is create trust in the communities. What they did was when they hired the new officers, they sent them door to door. And Camden is, I believe, 90 percent minority. Right. So they send the officers door to door just to knock on the door and say, hey, I'm I'm the new cop on the beat. This is my beat. Uh, Your security is my job, and I just wanted to introduce myself. Would something like that work here, do you think? I am not sure because, I mean, we have to really get down to the root of the issue. I mean, policing is based on, you know, 400 years of historic oppression, right? They, I mean, police were slave catchers. So when we start talking about reimagining what policing looks like, I think maybe for community, they want to see something other than what is currently happening. I mean, to tear something down and build it up the right way, but the only thing that we're going to add to it is just somebody going door to door to say hi. I think we should be reimagining something a little bit more progressive than that. Now, when you say police are slave catchers, I can certainly, I think I understand why black people would feel that way. Do you think the police are trained that way or that some of that legacy has snuck into police training? I think that people come into things with their own um, biases. I think that um, there is, I mean, and has been shown that there is white supremacy that is running rampant within law enforcement. Um, I do not know specifically how Seattle Police Department and their office is running what they're doing, but it's not like how I feel about it. That was why police were created. They were slave catchers. That is a known fact. Right. But my question is, well, I mean, a lot of institutions had crazy beginnings. Our own nation was created as a, you know, a racist nation. It's in the Constitution. But what I mean is uh, you don't think the passage of time has wrung any of that out, huh? 
No, I do not. If if that had been the case, we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing currently happening all across the nation. Yeah. I remember um, people have asked me, Dave, why is this happening now? And my answer is because of cell phones. I can remember when I, when I first came to Seattle, which has been, what, 42 years ago now, we would occasionally get calls in the newsroom from, from uh, people in the black community reporting some kind of police abuse. And, of course, if you looked at the police reports, it was nowhere to be found. And so, you know, I don't know what to do with that, uh, except take the report and see what happened. Today, of course, these things are, are, are all over the place. And is it your experience that this has been going on all along and it's only because of the cell phones that we're now finding out about it? Absolutely. There has been harm in black and brown communities since forever. I mean, dating back to when I was nine and I almost got my head blown off by the Seattle Police Department. You know, so like this stuff has happened. It's not a new thing. It continues to happen. The only thing that's different is everybody else is seeing it play out and not just what we're saying. Like you get to see what we're saying, you know, you get to see the over-policing. You get to see what, um, how our black and brown bodies keep being falling to the ground. But I mean, I think it's even bigger than just black and brown bodies because I don't want to make any mistake about it. You know, white people are being killed by law enforcement as well. And so are indigenous people and other people as well. Right. I think that there is, we are being killed at a higher rate and then um, indigenous people at a higher rate than black people. But I think all people are falling victim to the police use of deadly force. And could it be fixed by having more black cops? No. Why not? I do not believe that because I I think that wearing that badge and being blue supersedes their blackness. How does that happen? It's the culture. Um, The culture of policing hasn't changed. You know, if you have individuals who are black that are on the police force and they see something wrong being done and they're the good cop, but they don't say anything. What does that mean? Or if they do say something, then no one's watching their back while they're out there in the field doing their police work. Right. And it comes back to like the culture. Right. So it's the, it's not like there's that one bad apple. You know, I think it's all just rotten and not because everybody wants to be rotten, because I have met some exceptional police officers mm-hmm. and I will never I will never deny that I have worked alongside them in my professional role. I have not had a bad encounter uh, with any um, Seattle Police Department officers when I was working alongside them or any of that. I will never. How say are you working with police officers? That. Um, in my professional role, and I am speaking to you as a family member, but in my professional role, I worked with, um, I was a project manager for law enforcement assisted diversion. Oh, I see. The lead program. Yeah. The lead program. Absolutely. Huh. Well, then you're working with them every day. And yet you still feel that the the training instills something perverse in them? I think 
my role as what I was doing to helping divert people out of the criminal justice system into community-based resources was something completely different. And, um, you know, I have made like very meaningful relationships with officers and um, I actually care for some of them and I, I, I want them to be safe while they are out there. I make no mistake about that. But I do think that overall, I don't think there is enough training that is happening and if there, it's not working because bodies are still falling victim to deadly force. Yeah. That program, that's still going on, right? Absolutely. And that, well, that should be part of the solution, right? Because the idea is that when people get in trouble, they shouldn't instantly have a criminal record that destroys the rest of their lives. I agree. Um, cause it does nothing to, to help them in the long run. You know what I mean? Um, I think that, uh, lead is a way in which lead and in fact, co-lead is a way in which, you know, it, it works for some people, but it's not the panacea, right? It's not going to solve all of the complex problems that, um, we have, but I do believe that lead is a tool and it's a tool that should be used for certain individuals that have low-level drug offenses, have unmet behavioral health needs, as well as, you know, extreme poverty. Those are things that uh, LEAD helps with. Yeah. And so how does a police officer who is cool with that kind of a program turn into a a monster on the beat? Now, I can't say, and, you know, I will not say that the uh, <laughs> Officers that are, you know, in the program that all of them are on the beat. Some of them are. And I don't I don't know if the officers that are working with the lead program are officers that are out there doing some of the things that we have been seeing that have been happening around the city. I don't know that they are the ones that are using excessive force. Like, I can't say that those are the same officers. Mm-hmm. So then is it a matter of simply going through the staff person by person and giving them, I don't know, interviewing them, looking at their Facebook feeds, looking at social media, uh, giving them psychological tests, figuring out who deserves to stay on the force and, and who does not? For me, I think that as a whole, we have to begin to reimagine policing for the situations that we are dealing with now. Now, how we go about that, it's going to be super complicated. And I don't think it's going to be as simple as giving them psychological tests. But I do believe that they should have ongoing and continual psychological tests. I do believe that all officers should have ongoing and continuous training. Those were some of the things that 940 was supposed to be helping with. But obviously, there are gaps within that as well. Could it be that the nature of policing itself traumatizes people? Because I've seen studies Absolutely. indicating that, that if, you know, if you grow up, just, just ordinary people growing up in a violent community, they, come, they, they end up with PTSD. And a cop goes from crime to crime to crime to crime to crime. And after a certain time, maybe you need to have term limits just because of the nature of the job. I agree, but I don't know that I agree with the statement that growing up in a violent community is where we're at. I think that, you know, there's violence all over, and I don't think that every community is necessarily violent. 
Mm -hmm. Um, I think that just growing up in everyday life, but if you are from a black and brown community, you know, that it has, has, that has historically been over-policed, there is an extra added tension that comes along with that and goes into driving that wedge between law enforcement and community. So do you see anything different this time about the effort for police reform? Do you think this is there's finally enough momentum behind it that something will happen that you yourself will end up being satisfied with? You'll come away saying, yeah, we finally figured it out. That depends on, you know, if we have the right people with the right intentions um, that are representing community at the table. I think we will only find good solutions if we have a diverse array of people at the table. And that is not currently what I see happening right now. And I think that when we start talking about what policing looks like, I mean, impacted families, people who have actually lost their loved ones to the uh, police use of deadly force. And I'm not talking about one specific individual. It has to be a collective of individuals and no, everyone doesn't always have to agree, but we still know why we are there and what the intent is. And until we have opened up and let everybody come to that table that want meaningful change, I don't think that we're going to get anywhere. No one person or no one entity can represent a whole community. Are there people who are being kept away? Absolutely. I haven't been, I mean, if you think about the city of Seattle, I haven't been asked anything. Or my opinion, there are several others. Um, if you're looking at what's been happening over the course since, you know, the murder of George Floyd, um, I think that there has been a continual disregard for folks that have been doing the work in the community. I know that there are several other individuals that are advocates within community that have not been invited to the table. I mean, that has been a thing. I have seen, you know, secret meetings that have gone on with the mayor that half the people don't even know who's it that represent community. Most people don't even know. Hmm. Well, I mean, Andre Um, Taylor's been very high profile. He certainly has been through this, right? He is one individual, but I do not believe that he speaks for an entire community. So have you so you've obviously communicated this to the to the mayor's office and you've gotten no response? I I mean, I have talked to, you know, Jenny Durkin and, you know, of course, I mean, there's no secret that one of our family demands are that we're calling for her resignation Mm -hmm. um, for simply just lying to my family. But I mean, definitely. I mean, numerous people keep saying, why are you having these secret meetings? Why not be transparent? Why not allow other people to be able to come to the table about what is happening in their community. I mean, you have people speaking on a community that may not even necessarily live in that community, and the people there aren't even at the table. Yeah. So you'd like an invitation to uh, be able to give you a like it. I would like an invitation for me. I would like an invitation for other individuals. I don't even necessarily... I would feel better if I wasn't even at the table and there were other people that represent the community at the table. I think those people that are having those meetings need to look around and say, who's not here and why aren't they here and how do we get them here? Yeah. And I'm hoping that that is some of the things. I mean, and that's, I mean, some of that is the only reason why I joined the governor's task force for independent investigations to make sure that, you know, I can bring in the voice 
for impacted families and the community of which I live and I represent. Oh, so but you are on the governor's task force then. That sounds like a big deal. It's yet to be seen. We'll see what happens there, you know, um, but I am willing to do my part to help out the governor and to inform uh, the legislators on, you know, some of the shortfalls of 940 so that we can involving independent investigations so that we could be sure that we change those things. Yeah. Okay. So you're not entirely voiceless then. Oh, I'm never going to be voiceless. Whether (laughs) I'm at the table or not, (laughs) whether I'm at that table or not, I'm not going to be voiceless. I know the work that I do in community. I believe in all of the people and those people in CHOP. I believe that their voice matters as well as impacted families and everybody else. All right. Fair enough. Anything else you want to add? Just that, um, you know, I encourage everyone to come out and join us on Sunday as we demand accountability from uh, Mayor Durkin. Sunday at uh, 5 o'clock, we're meeting at Magnuson Park. Katrina Johnson is the cousin of Charlena Lyles and organizing this Sunday's event at Magnuson Park. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.